from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Seamus. Hey, guys. How are you? Hey, Lindsay. Hi, everyone. We are all together again on Bike Talk. Last week, we did a show on, on the state of emergence, which was kind of a play on words, which was the state of emergency and the state of emergence, which is the emergence of this new mode that we're in about trying to get more bike lanes and more bike infrastructure on the city streets. Uh, Nick, you did a lot of interviews separately. And this week, you bring them all together in a roundtable. Is that right? Yeah, we had people fighting for protected bike lanes and complete streets in different cities last episode. And we brought most of them together again for a roundtable on it in the same interview. You want to listen to it? Here it is. Yeah, let's do. We have Karen Perlick in Berkeley. Their organization is trying to get complete streets on Hopkins. There's some equity issues. There's a lot of schools on the street and it's all happening right now. The campaign is in full, full swing. And then we have Lucy and Vancouver. The fight for Stanley Park Drive has been, I don't know if we would say lost, but we kind Mine of- Minor setback, we call it. And, and then in Pittsfield, we have a whole lot going on with Ricardo Morales. Are you the- I'm the commissioner of public works. I used to be the city engineer and uh, since the pandemic, the commissioner. And then we have Luke Bornheimer, who's got a website on slow streets, shared streets, healthy streets. What I'd like to talk about, since it seems like people are encountering the same kind of opposition everywhere in the entire world, is what is going on? Why is it that people are uh, against safety? And... I don't even know if that's the right question. Maybe understanding why they're against safety isn't the important thing. Maybe it is. What's the opposition like? I've been doing organizing advocacy here in San Francisco for over two years now um, and got really involved with uh, car-free JFK or what's now known as JFK Promenade Golden Gate Park um, and and also in um, Great Highway Park, which is a former parkway along our, you know, western coast, along Ocean Beach, um, along the Pacific Ocean. I've done organizing and advocacy throughout our city and on different things, car light spaces and car free spaces. And I will say the thing that sticks out to me, I try to empathize with people who oppose these things or unsure. And I think ultimately what this boils down to for a lot of people is, is change is hard for humans, particularly with transportation and mobility. Um, people kind of take for granted how they get around. And unfortunately for us, for our society, for the planet, we have for decades prioritized the convenience and throughput of private automobiles and the storage of private automobiles on public space. And so invariably, we must adapt we must improve these spaces. We must change. Our environment must change. And that is hard for humans. And, and I think that, that's at the core of a lot of this. It's just people are resisting change. And they will say a variety of things of why that change is unnecessary and bad. But ultimately, it boils down to this is change and it's scary. And that's, that's understandable. And that is not a reason to not make the improvements that we need to make 
to make our streets safer, to make our cities more livable, and to frankly save our planet. I agree with everything you're saying, Luke, except I thought adaptability was the defining trait of our species. <laughs> yeah, 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 except I think, I think transportation is a very special thing. As a species, yes, those things can coexist. Adaptation takes more than one lifetime. <laughs> oh. It's interesting because in my, I'm here as part of uh, the co-founding coordinating committee member of Walk Bike Berkeley, an advocacy group here in Berkeley. Um, I'm also chair of the Transportation Infrastructure Commission here in Berkeley. I'm not here in that role today, um, but I don't do that. But in my day job, I actually work with communities across the country on, on walkable neighborhoods and what that makes. And we do a lot of work in housing. And so our, our firm is the company that came up with the concept of missing middle housing. And it's the exact same resistance that's happening in the housing conversations that's happening in the transportation sphere. It's the exact same thing. And it has to do with, I, I think it has a lot to do with like the images people get in their heads about who this is for and what it looks like and how it's going to work. With the missing middle housing, it was before people were barely talking about zoning, but you know, somebody would say the word density or up zone and people get a picture in their head of, oh my gosh, this is downtown Manhattan coming to my small village, right? And what we did with missing middle housing we hadn't intended to talk about, but it's making me realize, is we put different pictures in their head about actually places that they know and love that is what we're talking about. How do we house more people? We changed, we reframed the conversation about what it looks like to house more people in, in low-rise, you know, walkable neighborhoods. And I think I, I've been trying to like transition that into the my trans transportation advocacy work is how do we like, because I do, you know, the resistance we're getting here in Berkeley. Uh, it is definitely this kind of what what one of my um, co-committee members, Ben Gerhardstein, mentioned last time about this like liberal blind spot for cars and how cars, um, you know, but I think it's actually the same blind spot for single family homes. It's a very, it's fascinating to me, the parallels happening here. And it is this blind spot, again, for a certain interpretation of what the American dream was. You got your single family home with your big yard and your two and a half kids and your dog and your cat and, and your, you know, two cars and your boat, you know, right? And which is not actually the true American dream. The American dream was about coming to a place of religious liberty to pursue a life of freedom, but we've been sold this vision and the car and the house are, are a big part of that. And so that resistance, it, you know, it's, it, we have to tell people different stories about what it means to be free and, and this transportation we're getting, we're getting resistance um, from people that just don't realize how pervasive and how, how the design of our entire communities have been signed around the car and have never been forced to think about it differently. Um, and and we're also getting resistance from people that that you know know to say the right things. They know they know that we need different mobility choices. You know, Berkeley is a liberal haven and talks about the climate emergency, declared a climate emergency, but they're unfamiliar with the tools that it takes. And and they are if they don't come up with the idea, they're resistant to it. And if they don't get enough information and they don't have enough data and they haven't seen it themselves. Right. They're just in, in some ways, it's a very, um, a very academic group that like, you know, even if you put a survey in front of them, they're going to question how the survey was taken and whether the metrics were right. Like, it's fascinating the, the, the breadth of resistance that we get when we start to say, hey, look, we need to do things a little differently. 
I have some ideas about that. I couldn't agree more strongly that um, change is difficult for people. And the way we see that manifesting in active transport resistance is that I think driving is already so miserable, so miserable, that people just see all these initiatives that we're trying to get in place as um, making their lives more difficult. So removing on-street car parking, installing bike lanes, um, people don't realise that it will help them. They don't realise that the streets are made safer for everybody, including drivers, when we put in separated bike lanes. You know, they don't see that they'll travel overseas to Italy to visit a pedestrianised street, but they are resisting having one on Water Street in Vancouver, even though that would be the biggest tourist attraction and so good for the locals. You know, people... People just see that from the point of view of over their steering wheel and how hard it is for them to find a parking spot. And some of it, I think, is elite projection as well amongst our decision makers, especially our, you know, municipal elected officials. You know, they are comfortably housed and they drive their car everywhere. Um, not a lot of them are cycle commuters or using transit. So they they sort of think that their common sense from their perspective is what works for everybody else as well. So um, you know, that's changing quite a lot in Vancouver. We've got a few elected officials that are cycle commuters and, and are seeing things from a slightly different perspective. But I, I think elite projection is a huge, huge problem in, you know, what people consider to be acceptable decisions like that, um, you know, they the people that sponsor political parties or are friends with political um, elected officials are people that live in a single family home and drive a car. So we've got to overcome that. And I think the last thing that strikes me is that people don't understand the way traffic works. People think that there's a fixed amount of cars and that when you put in a separated bike lane or pedestrianise a street, that that number of cars has to go somewhere. They don't realise that traffic is simply the product of our decision-making and that we all take into account the cost and the convenience and safety and what we expect traffic congestion to be like. You know, I'm constantly talking about the hockey game at Rogers Arena and how people who would normally drive a car if they thought it was convenient will um, take the, the subway train because they know that it'll be a pain in the butt to get home and get there otherwise. And, and so I'm explaining and explaining and explaining that and I'm hoping that one day people mainstream people will move the Overton window so that um, people understand that it's actually really in the best interest of everybody to um, put in place these um, bike lanes, extra transit, pedestrianised zones, school streets, all the things that we know is best for everybody, but uh, we've just got to tell the story and convince people and make them see things a different way. I couldn't agree more with all that you guys have said. Oftentimes we, especially for me working in a municipal government, uh, you know, local government in this bubble, of, you know, solving the problems we have, solving the issues that we know people are using elsewhere, but how, how we address the issues that our community is having, uh, oftentimes without thinking that this is a problem that's happening everywhere. And when we start seeing not just where the problem is happening now, uh, but also the places that 
had that problem decades ago and fixed it and pointing to people that have this notion of what should be right, how transportation should be working, pointing to them like, you remember the trip you took several months ago to Italy? You loved it. What did you love about that? And you start framing that conversation around those places did not get to where they are just because of where they are, right? It's because of the decisions people made one after the other in the right direction to make it a great place. And we can make those same decisions here. We can make those same decisions everywhere in, in, in the U.S., in our cities, in, you know, in Canada too, of course. Getting to that place, it is challenging. It's bridging that notion and reframing the perspective for those that are uh, looking for ways to see the world the way it works for them now and asking them, how can the world work for you in a different way that works better for everyone else as well? It's, it's very difficult, but we, we have to take that challenge and, and tackle it. I'm glad that we have people like everyone here that we can you know, rely on, people that you know, study this, that research all this, that we can draw upon, and we don't have to rely on ourselves waking up one day thinking, aha, I'm going to do, I'm going to put a uh, bike lane in this corridor with these dimensions that someone, we have so much, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants that came before us to get these things done. Uh, We're not here alone. And, and I think that's the community mindset we have to take to tackle these issues. Transportation to me seems unique. The challenge that we face, but also the opportunity is that the people who will benefit and use sustainable transportation are largely, almost entirely, the people who are already in our cities. And so our challenge is that almost all of those people can't fathom a future where they don't drive their car for everyday transportation. But the benefit and, and an opportunity is that they are already there. The challenge for us is getting people to consider that maybe possibly some of my trips, I might not drive. And and we know from data and cities and examples around the world that people will be happier. Our cities will be more livable, more sustainable. Uh, The challenge is getting more and more people to say, maybe I could be one of those people, or even maybe my neighbor will be that person. I need to drive everywhere, but maybe my neighbor will be that person. Driving will be easier for me. Well, you all touched on all my all my notes here. Karen talked about, among other things, how data itself will not be enough because people will overcome data. Uh, Lucy, you talked about how to show how complete streets, safe streets are better for drivers too. And Ricardo, you talked about, among other things, how good it is to know that other people are doing what you're doing. Uh, Luke, you you are embodying what I'm. What, my final point, which is, uh, what kind of support group can we use? Uh, so you've got a website. Is that something that everybody's going to jump on, or you all want to start a phone tree? Say, so I, I have it open right now on my second. <laughs> I can say, you know, in San Francisco, roughly two years ago, one of the things I noticed. So you know, I, I've had some history in organizing for advocacy efforts for a while. Um, and one of the things I noticed is a lot of people on Twitter kind of complaining about things or wanting things. 
and it wasn't leading to actual like on the ground progress. And so I created, you know, I use Slack, but I created an online community where people could discuss these things and where I organize many of these advocates. And that has been honestly transformational for San Francisco and for the advocacy community because it, it connects people who are doing all these different disparate things together. It also allows people to become aware of other projects because ultimately, as we all know, people care about that thing closest to home. And if all of a sudden they know, oh, somebody's working on that other thing, I can help a little bit with that or I can help spread word about that. Um, so that has been invaluable. It's something that I would suggest. And, and it doesn't need to be Slack. It could be a Google group. It could be Discord. It, I mean, it could be whatever works best um, for your city, for your community, but it has been invaluable you know, also just to connect people and make them feel like they're part of a community. Yeah, I think that it's important to use a whole bunch of different methods to organise. You know, I, uh, I've i uh, had to start behaving myself on Twitter a bit more because I've got a whole bunch of elected officials following me. So I uh, definitely tone down the swearing. Um, but I reach a whole bunch of people through in uh, Instagram and that's not my natural habitat, but I make a real effort because I, I've got a much younger group of people that are on Instagram and that are really responsive and you know we've got a really good discord group on a whole bunch of kind of urbanist topics and I'm in the walk ride roll section of that quite often and get a lot of support there we've got a really great very big email list through the formal cycling advocacy group called hub cycling and I'm not formally involved with hub cycling but I work closely with with those people on to know what our priorities are and what we should be pushing and then just my own informal groups so I, I use a multi-pronged approach if I've got something to get done I've got a whole bunch of ways of getting it done and that reaches a whole lot of different people I think shared resources are really important you know for for two different reasons we're finding that it's really important to talk about not only why the status quo doesn't work, but what the future could look like, to envision what the future could look like. And again, when people have images in their head already, it's hard to counter that unless you actually have pictures or drawings, right? And drawings are expensive to get done, right? It's hard, a lot of cities don't have the, 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 the budget to be able to hire professionals to come in and do this. And even a lot of the professionals in the space are engineers, not necessarily, you know, urban designers and visualists. And so having a resource where other cities, you know, I'm constantly searching for examples in other cities that I can show pictures of to calm people's fears. And so having shared resources around, you know, successful projects that have been built um, so that others of us can use those images to give examples of, you know, what it looks like, but also that this has happened in other places. You know, we often get complaints about, we don't want to be the guinea pigs here. You know, we don't want you to try think new things here, right? And so we can say, no, this has been, you know, tried before. I think that kind of sharing of that imagery and then also knowing then if we had like even a list of successful projects with some in imagery with some contact info then when we get to the point of like you know with our you know our 2 uh, cycle track on hopkins there are a lot of residential driveways so we're getting pushback about people worried about pulling in on other driveways and so if i can find three other projects like even one other project like that that's been done that i can then contact that advocate how did you get past this issue right how did you talk about this issue um, or other issues you know we got some great advice from our friends in alameda about how they really focused on the um the you know who the vote 
right? You know, there's so much you can do around public involvement and in education, but in the end, it comes down to a council vote, right? And so they put all of their efforts in on the mayor, right? And so hearing that kind of, um, you know, being able to have conversations with other advocates about what worked for a similar type of project would be invaluable um, for those of us on the ground who are all mostly doing this volunteer, mostly doing this, you know, in our spare time. So I, I think something like that would be incredibly helpful. I think it's, uh, interesting the way you mentioned um, involving our shared resources to promote visually what our ideas will ultimately become. And I think because of what you mentioned before, it seems like you're also implying that doing studies and analyzing and presenting data is not enough. And, and that's why it was one of the topics here by by Nick, it's proven that people just get lost in the numbers for some reason. And um, maybe even here, we don't, all of us, uh, like I do, love the data and visualizing uh, information in that way. But despite telling us very good information, it does tend to have that flaw. And we definitely felt that in Pittsfield. We included the buffered bike lane on the downtown. We included part of the project was a full study right after um, the first year of implementation. And, you know, it, it portrayed that we had a reduction in crashes and collisions, about 70% um, increase in bicycle ride. We made some additional notes, compared them to the rising collisions around the state and around the, the city elsewhere, contrasting that with much more importance. And that's just seemed to fly over people's heads and it doesn't matter. And, you know, despite you telling people bicycle infrastructure is really car infrastructure, you know, crosswalks are really not for pedestrians or for vehicles. So like we're doing these things to make that mode of transportation safer for those using them against vehicles to protect them against the most dangerous part of the road. When we frame it that way, you start getting some people understanding, but it's making those stories. I think it's very important to capture people's imaginations or trying to rein in people's imaginations in, into visual stories. And I think some good tools for that are the GIS story maps. Um, we tend to use that a lot. Um, and we have people in the, in the city here that are versed with that. And we, we use that for, you know, community engagement and sharing what this can look like in terms of a, you know, timeline story scroll through. Yeah, I got some good advice recently from a mentor who told me don't bring facts to an emotion fight. And we're all fighting emotion fights. What Karen's talking about with um, storytelling and helping people to visualise a different future is so important. You know, we're trying to get our school street made permanent. You know, we want to talk about photogenic children having opportunities to frolic through their neighbourhoods with freedom and independence. You know, we don't want to concentrate on statistics about car parking revenue. So, yeah, we've got to really tell stories. And this same uh, mentor also pointed me to resistance school because I was particularly interested in how do I apply that good advice about not bringing facts to an emotion fight to my advocacy and uh, yeah look up resistance school there's just it's a fantastic resource for advocates okay we'll do and so let's uh, go around and since this is bike talk we'll end with a bike joy and everybody uh, take a moment to reflect on a time that they've experienced 
Bike Joy? I can well, jump in. I mean, I spend a lot of time um, cheering people up. I think there are a couple of examples in Vancouver that really show that things are hopeful and things are improving, like things are improving too slow. But I've got two examples. So 15 years ago, there were bike lanes put on Burrard Bridge, right? Separated bike lanes. And the mayor got death threats. We thought it was going to be the end of the world. Now, even semi-conservative people admit that it was the best decision and no one would ever in their right minds rip out these separated bike lanes and there was virtually no fight to put separated bike lanes on Granville Bridge which is over a little bit it wasn't even really a fight you know Beach Avenue bikeway got put in and no one's proposing to rip that out even conservative politicians because we're getting 15,000 bike trips a day on peak days in summer it's one of the most highly intensely used um, bike lanes in North America, definitely the most popular one in Vancouver. And, um, you know, we had a separated bike lane called Hornby Street that went in 10 or so years ago, or maybe a bit more, that was a big fight, massive fight. But Richard Street, which is parallel a few blocks over, is this beautiful, beautiful bike lane that got put in in the last two or three years. And there wasn't a fight for that. So, you know, you have the big fights. But then people realise the world didn't end and then it gets a little bit each, easier each time. I can go next. Where I sit during my day job, I can see one of the intersections in our downtown where we installed the bike lane. Since we installed it, I every time I see, especially when I see a parent riding with their son, with their daughter, with their kid, either alongside them or on a seat behind them, I rejoice. I stand up. I look out the window. I'm clapping there by myself like, yes, you go. Enjoy the bike lane. Be safe. That's me when I'm with my son doing that. My daughter is too big and so she would be riding on the side. But then also very recently with all the controversy surrounding the bike lane around here and some efforts to take that uh, bike lane out and re install two lanes of travel in each direction. There was this uh, moment at open mic and, and Nick, I, I believe you had her on the podcast recently, 90 year old retired teacher from Pittsfield here. She was extremely lovely. Her message talking about, she doesn't ride a bike right now, but she was just saying, if a 90 year old can navigate North street, then essentially let's not keep fighting about this like she said she used better words but it, it was so amazing uh moment i was there in the room when that happened and i looked at her like i want to be like that person when i'm 90 years old and that was an incredible moment i would say i love that story and that anecdote for me two things come to mind one i helped to start sf bike bus here in san francisco for kids and families to bike to school and I've helped to organize a variety of bike buses around the city. And I think seeing kids and families bike to school and feel the, the freedom and the joy specifically, and the freedom and the joy seen in other people's faces, seeing people bike to school, even if it's not part of a bike bus, it's an uplifting and inspiring thing to see that you're like, there's something here that this changes the conversation from what people have historically thought of as like, oh, it's just a able-bodied guy who wants to bike and that's all the bike lanes for. That's one thing. 
And the other one is, you know, Carfree JFK Promenade was a very long, drawn out fight. It was a political fight to get it to be made permanent and, and permanently 100% car free. Um, there was a lot of efforts to try and water it down, cut the road in half, split roadway, one-way roadway, parking on one side. The joy moment for me that I hope I could instill in any other advocate listening is that there were many times where people suggested we should water it down, we should compromise because going for the full thing, you're going to lose it all. And I think it's really critical for advocates and organizers to remember that our role as advocates is to push for the ideal. We are not the policymakers. We are not the decision makers. They're the ones who will ultimately compromise. And so it's our role as advocates to say what the ideal is because those policymakers need to hear what the ideal is so that they can decide, am I going to lead and go for the ideal? Am I going to compromise? It is joy for me to think back on it and think we held the line. I helped to hold that line and say, no, this, we want it to be 100% car free, 24-7, no cars. That's, that's it. And, and there's many reasons why we do that. You know, we got 70% of, of residents in support on a survey. And then when it went to the ballot, because as will happen many times in the decades ahead, opponents took it to the ballot and it passed 65-35. Like, just not even close. And mind you, there was millions of dollars spent on this ballot measure. Like it shouldn't have been that much of a blowout. That is joy to me that we went for the ideal and we got it. Amazing stories. You just mentioned joy and bikes and my whole, I, my whole body lights up. I just, you know, being on my bike is my happy place. And I love being in my city. I live in Berkeley. I work in Berkeley. I raise my kids in Berkeley. And being in the city, it provides so many opportunities when you're on a bike to meet other people. You know, we were stopped at a really important intersection. We've been focused on, for all, all of our parallel bike boulevards, focused on improving the intersections across kind of major thoroughfares. So, you know, they're, they're fairly quiet streets most of the way, but we have to get across the thoroughfares. And then there's this wonderful new bike and pedestrian crossing light that we put in right next to one of our uh, major transit stations. And I was sitting there waiting for the light to turn because I knew it was going to see me even though I was on my bike. And this woman behind me with her two kids on back all turned and said, hey, nice socks. And they had noticed my socks and the little girls were giggling at it. And they were like, you made our day with your great socks. You know, those are the interactions that you have when you're on a bike in the city and when other people are on their bike in the city. And, you know, I have wonderful memories of raising my children. My daughter is now 20. My son is 13 of them. They We've ridden bikes since they were able to hold up a helmet on their head and they both did little scoot bikes and you know the the moments of joy when they could stop on their scoot bike and force me to wait while they like looked at the worm across the sidewalk you know I mean you experience so much more of life when you're walking and biking um, that you lose out on when you're in a car and and getting the opportunity to share that and see other people experience that and realize kind of that possibility you know I, I feel very fortunate to get to share this with other people and help other people find this joy in their life. I have to stop myself from smiling weirdly at people on Beach <laughs> Avenue. I, I go up and down Beach Avenue bikeway multiple times a day. And when I see a parent with their tiny child on a bike or people riding side by side, a couple talking or 
you know, even the lycra roadies barreling down there with plenty of room to pass. It it just makes me so happy. And, you know, I've made so many friends stopped at the lights on bike lanes in Vancouver. And, you know, you see the same people passing the other way all the time. And, uh, you know, I'm on high there terms with them. And uh, it's really impossible to be unhappy and disconnected from your community when you're out on your bike on the bike lanes all the time. Yeah. And I'll tell one other story. There's this, because we talk a lot about families and kids, but there's been this woman who has this wonderful, she's in her seventies and has another adult tricycle and it's a bright yellow, my favorite color. And I'd seen her because she rides on this tricycle through town with her dog attached to the bike. And so she, you know, this woman in her seventies on her yellow tricycle with her dog along. And I have pictures from her of her from behind, but I had never gotten a chance to meet her. And then I was out in my, you know, on my front stoop the other day and she rode by and I said, hi, I said, do you have a second? And she actually was able to stop and I got to meet her and I got to talk to her and right, like if she'd been in a car that never would have happened, but you know, it, it, it enabled a chance for me to meet her and hear more about her story. And, um, you know, again, it's like it, just creating ways for us to connect in our community. There is an advocate in San Francisco, his name's Vernon Cheney. He talked about the concept of people speed that when people are walking and biking or taking public transportation, that they're moving at the speed of people. And so they can notice things around them. They can talk to people around them. And, and that has stuck with me ever since, that that is a profound concept that is like one of the benefits and the joys of walking and biking and using public transit that I think people don't even realize is there until they do it. And then there's this amazing thing that happens. Yeah, that goes along with the combination of the scale, the human scale, people speed, our built environment meant for people, not for higher speeds, not for uh, larger than than human scale. Um, it's very profound. And I think we need to just simply go back to our own scale. Yeah, that's one of the things that I push about our school street. It's really building community in our neighbourhood because it it does make the street safer, not just by excluding um, the pollution and danger from um, motor vehicles, but it also gets more people on the street. And for kids that are walking to and from school and just playing and um, having the freedom to wander around their neighbourhood, it just means that there are more eyes on the street because there are more people attracted to be out on the street you know we're all looking at out for each other's children and you know we're congregating on the street because during the pandemic it's you know safer to meet outdoors we're just helping to stop social isolation you know I was volunteering the last couple of days on our school street and um we've had lots of heavy snow which in Vancouver just shuts everything down and you know I've helped to shovel crosswalks I've helped a parent to carry their kids wheelchair over a snowbank I've helped a woman with mobility issues get through snow on her walker I mean that's a whole different topic is failing to clear sidewalks of snow but but you know having people out on the street helps everybody well, I think this has been wonderful, perfect conversation. I think this is something that probably needs to happen more often. So we'll definitely do it again. And thank you, Lucy, Ricardo, Karen, and Luke for being on Bike Talk. Thanks for having us. It's really you. great to yeah. talk to everybody. Thanks, everyone. Great meeting you all. 
What I love so much about Bike Talk and that piece is that Bike Talk is sort of this forum. It's almost like a salon where all these great minds and these advocates and activists are coming together to figure out mobility and figure out how do we change our cities and make them work. We're putting together this whole story and just listening to people from all walks of life, just coming together and figuring out how do we do this? Right. Yeah. I love bike talk because I think that bikes, the discussions around bikes represent the this nexus of, of urbanism or urbanism and environmentalism almost. The ideas that advocates have been championing for decades are now really taking center stage as sort of the solution to so many problems. I think everybody is sick of cars, even people in cars, everybody's sick of them. What I like about bikes is they don't solve any one problem by themselves, but they are a part of the solution to almost all of our problems. If you make communities safe for, for bikes, you'll make them safe for everyone. A complete street has a bike lane. And it expands out. Obviously, we know it's connected to housing. It's your mental health, your your actual health, the air we breathe, our anxiety. I mean, road rage is in the DSM. <laughs> it is an explosive disorder that we get from just the anxiety of traffic. Yeah. To that end, I think that we should talk about this bike summit idea that we've been we've been discussing amongst ourselves you know an opportunity for bike talk to uh, host a a summit where where people can talk about this nexus that bikes provide how uh, bike infrastructure is the future <laughs> you totally. know yeah let's it, have a summit yeah which makes me think if the listener has any ideas that you want us to cover or people that you think we should talk to let us know reach out to us at biketalk.org so, uh, Lindsay, you had a thing about 15-minute cities on Active Towns, I saw. You want to mention that? Yeah, I was interviewed on uh, the amazing show and podcast, Active Towns, uh, with John Zimmerman. And we talked about the Livable Communities Initiative, which I've been deeply involved with. And it's the 15-minute city. I had a really good talk with Eli Kaufman, who's the exec director of Bike LA. And they dug into all the information about all the bike crashes in 2022. And basically what they came up with is if there's a street that does not have bicycle infrastructure on it, it is dangerous for everybody, drivers, bikers, and walkers. Wow. Eli has been a, a mentor of mine this past year, you know, really gotten me educated about bike advocacy. Yeah. Here's that interview. Last year in LA County, there were 26 cyclists, people riding bikes, killed on our streets. Bike LA, which is formerly the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition, and its executive director, Eli Kaufman, did a report on digging out the data of those 26 crashes that resulted in death. And today on Bike Talk, my guest is Eli Kaufman. Once again, Eli, welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks so much for having me and for giving us some time to share our report. It's a, it's an important piece of research and uh, the data is, uh, you know, it's upsetting and it's all the more reason why we have to keep on keeping on with what we're working on, which is to right. make LA a safer, healthier, more equitable place to ride a bike. Can you quickly tell us what the report was and then what you found? Yeah, so we really wanted to investigate what are the conditions that have resulted in these these 26 fatalities, all of which we believe are avoidable and, you know, tragic, obviously, but really 
there are many cities around the, the, the globe and in America that, that do a better job of protecting the lives of cyclists and pedestrians and transit users. But this report was really meant to be focused on the most serious outcomes from traffic violence, which is uh, you know, the ultimate outcome, unfortunately, which is the loss of life. Right, right. You didn't focus on just bike crashes around the city. These are really the ones that, that resulted in deaths. That's correct. And, and that number, of course, uh, is, is a much harder number to come to in terms of the, the collisions and crashes that result in injury of any kind. Um, many of them go unreported or underreported. And, but these fatalities and the, the, the map we were able to create to show exactly where these, these crashes took place, we felt that was a really stark way of showing how unsafe our streets really are. Right. Can you tell us what the report found? Yeah, I mean, there's really uh, four key findings and then just sort of an overall global understanding of which communities are hit the hardest. Right. So, you know, I'm just going to run through them for you because I feel like it's important to uh, repeat over and over again. Yeah, please do. I, I think our listeners want to hear that. Yeah, for sure. So one of these, one of the main issues is the high speed limits that we have in, in Los Angeles. Um, and it's every study that you can find shows that excessive speeds contribute significantly to the severity of road collisions, right. especially those involving bicyclists and pedestrians. And so we just need to lower our speed limits. I mean, the one of the things that happened in the pandemic when uh, the streets opened up in terms of traffic were the crashes became much more catastrophic. People were not were not surviving them as much. Right. And, and when they did survive, the outcomes were much more serious. So we just need to slow down our speed limits, and and that's oftentimes a third rail unpopular thing. But in a major urban area where you have so many people on the street, we just need to we need to become more conscious and, and more concerned for the lives of others. And when you're right. going fast, it's harder to do that. Right. Yeah. There's sorry, the one ahead. stat that always talks about when a, a car's traveling at 40 miles an hour, it kills the pedestrian or cyclist 85 percent of the time. But when the car's traveling 20 miles an hour, it only kills that person 5% of the time. So it really is a, a drastic change. Absolutely. And when you look at LA, we have so many major arterials, big streets that are multiple lanes wide, where cars just feel like they can blast through neighborhoods where there are right. people who are living and walking and playing and recreating. And it's just inappropriate to move that fast in a, in right. a, in a car uh, when you're looking at those types of dense, densely populated areas. The second finding was excessive travel lanes, which relates to that first finding. 77% of fatalities took place on multi-lane roads, often with three or more lanes in each direction. And so these major arterials, like I mentioned, signifies to drivers that you know the road is designed for them rather than all users. And I think that the infrastructure does tell a story. It says this is a thoroughfare versus a, a place where people live and work. There's a question about how appropriate these massive arterials are cutting through our major communities throughout the region. So the third the third thing was a lack of bike lane infrastructure, which is you know the number one thing that Bike LA and others have been focused on. 85% of fatalities in 2022 occurred on roadways without bike lanes. So that just goes to show like if these roads had bike lanes, right. we, can, we can make the, the easy sort of uh, conclusion that th many of these lives would have been saved. Another example are the... Um, the south end of Figueroa Street at Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. It's just another place where there's a bike lane to nowhere. So we, we are stressing that the quality of bicycle infrastructure matters right. and highlighting that, you know, the safety of protected lanes and intersections can calm neighborhood bicycle boulevards to, again, protect the lives of cyclists. 
You know, one of the things that I've noticed in my lived experience, absolutely, is when I'm on a bike lane and then it does dead end, right? It just sort of stops. I find that the car traffic around me accelerates because now they've got a more open sort of road. And, and there's also this, okay, we don't have to be conscious anymore, right? right. And so that's, again, how our infrastructure is failing us because non-consistent or, you know, lanes that end suddenly actually put cyclists at greater risk. And so that network that you're talking about is essential to, to making sure that we all just understand that cyclists belong and have a right to be on the road and therefore they have the right to be protected by bike infrastructure. Right, absolutely. And then the fourth, <clears throat> the fourth piece is just the poor street lighting. Over half of all 2022 cyclist fatalities occurred in, at night. And so that 50% at night uh, or over 50% at night shows that there's, there could be more consideration um, when, when visibility is less in the evenings. And we find that people who use bicycles as their primary mode of transportation to go to and from work, oftentimes are riding at dawn or dusk when visibility is at the lowest. And so, you know, we need to shine a light on those streets to make sure that those cyclists are <clears throat> made more visible and therefore more protected from cars that are speeding or cars in general. And again, this is, this is about creating interventions or creating infrastructure that is going to set people up for success and, right. and for getting from point A to B uh, in one piece. Right. And I would argue that it makes it safer for everybody. A narrower road slows down the overall speed of the car, which makes it safer for the driver of the car, it makes it safer for the pedestrian crossing the street, whether it's a child or an elderly person or, a, uh, you know, someone with a baby carriage. I mean, it's, it's, it, it just makes it safer for everybody. Right. <clears throat> right. And so, so in addition to calling for this type of infrastructure, there's another piece that I want to mention, which is that, you know, we need to provide bicyclists with lights. Uh, that should right. just be a program. That's not just something that bike LA does for, through our operation firefly we've been doing for almost a, well, about a decade. Yeah. And we've handed out over, I guess, 6,000 light sets so far, but that should just be, they're so inexpensive and they really do provide an extra layer of visibility that is necessary, especially when we have poor street lighting. In addition to that kind of program, we're also calling for cyclist education and to work to reduce night driver impairment, which is largely due to distraction and fatigue. We'd like to see more programming also to train cyclists how to you know, follow the rules, rules of the road, but also drivers who are vast majority throughout Los Angeles we need to we need to help them by providing them with the necessary education to understand the consequences of when they go too fast without regard for others. Right. And do you think that would be on the driver's test or would it be in signage or I mean, t t how do you see that? I'm I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I think there's any kind of number of ways that you could get that done. I mean, I do think the driver's test it does not speak to the lived experience of drivers in L.A. and what they have to contend with. Right. So that, that could certainly be a place. But yeah, I think that our signage throughout the region is, um, is, uh, is lacking as well. There are programs in other cities that do a better job of placing signage in the appropriate spots so that people can be reminded of, of you know, the fact that they're sharing the road with others. Right. Um, but there's also like the programs that Bike LA runs and other nonprofits in the area to help people to understand their responsibility when they get behind the wheel or, you know, when they... Uh, when they get on a bike. And I just, I just, I can't stress enough the importance of a infrastructure strategy, but also a programmatical strategy that, that sets everyone up to stay safe on our streets.
Right. Well, for far too long, we've given our streets over to the car completely. I think that the pandemic sort of opened our eyes or opened some of our eyes to the idea that streets can be used for other things, you know, for outdoor dining, for pedestrians, for cyclists, for scooters, for e-bikes. There's a there's a whole world of public space out there that is just eaten up by cars, you know, sitting there, whether they're yeah. they're parked for free overnight or whether they're speeding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no one would design streets today uh, if they were like, let's design something called a street that was single purpose, right? right. As much as they are in LA. So what I mean right. by single purpose is that our streets are by, by large designed for car traffic only. But think about all the other ways that our streets could become an amenity and a resource. Uh, the Alfresco program you mentioned in terms of outdoor dining, right. uh, especially during pandemic times, the importance of uh, open space uh, that's complete for all types of modalities is also just a, totally a missed opportunity. You want to encourage people to get out of their cars to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and to improve public health, then you got to build the infrastructure that's going to support those, those instincts. I mean, I was even talking to someone recently who worked for Folar, Friends of the LA River, mm -hmm. about the lack of space that is in our urban environment that can re-infiltrate water back into our aquifers. And if you look at our street design, even the way that our water is uh, is treated, it just goes right into the gutter and into those major uh, concretized channels that lead into the LA River and other and the Bayona Creek, and they just get flushed out to sea. Right. I mean, there's just you know we need to think about our streets as complete streets in terms of all the different things that they can serve other than moving car traffic. And I would suggest that there's materials and different types of interventions that could be used that would allow our streets to actually serve more than that single purpose, including reinfiltrating water into our aquifers and setting up space on the street for all kinds of people, whether they're walking, uh, scootering, taking transit or riding bikes. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I, the other thing to think about, Taylor, that I, I always think about is that bikes do mean business, right? right. So if, if bike traffic moves more slowly and there's the infrastructure and amenities that are necessary, bike parking spaces, places to lock up your bike, and the lane, of course, you're going to see traffic that's moving slow instead of blow-by traffic that's just, you know, literally flying through those neighborhoods. Right. Like slower vehicles and people moving at a more reasonable human speed are more likely to stop and become patrons. Right. So there's shop, an economic right. version. There's an economic benefit to bike infrastructure. There's the health benefit to bike infrastructure. And there's the environmental benefits of bike infrastructure, not to mention just the connectivity that it provides, which you're discussing among neighbors. Uh, Jim Withrich, who's our board chair, always says when he gets on a bike, he becomes a member of every community he rides through. And it's become kind of a rallying cry for us at Bike LA because it really does make you a more conscious member of the community. You become more connected to your own personal health, more connected to the quality of the air or lack thereof. You get more connected right. to the places that you're riding through. It's just harder to, to ignore both the good and the bad that you experience in, in Los Angeles. And I actually think it'll make us a, a kinder, gentler, more connected yeah. Yeah, community. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So those four points were in the report. What else was in the report? Well, one of the things that we found is that, again, low-income Black and Latinx neighborhoods bear the brunt. They're disproportionately right. impacted by all of these things because they've suffered from divestment for so many years. Right. So 61% of fatal crashes took place in neighborhoods with more than 65% people of color. And it's just like, it's again, it cuts across all of these different issues, but 
like the lack of dignified access to health, good work, food, schools that are up to par, the communities that have been left out can, you know, are also left out when it comes to the amenities that that would serve the biking community in those places. And I would just say that, like, there's also a greater number of those folks who use bikes as their primary mode of transportation right. because cars are just not affordable. And we live in this beautiful Mediterranean climate, as you and I have discussed, and the vast majority of our people live in the flats in Los right. Angeles, so they don't have to deal with much elevation gain to get from point A to B. So it just seems so obvious to those of us who are in this movement totally. that yeah. that this solves a lot of problems in one shot. And it does mean one thing though, that we have to go slower and we have to uh, and we have to measure our commutes by more than just speed. What else can a commute provide an individual other than just getting it over with as as, as fast as humanly possible? Right. right. And I guess I guess this sort of like, what does that say about our commutes if we're just our number one measure is how quickly can I get it over with? Right. We leave that to like, how quickly can I get out of the dentist chair? How quickly can I get through this this awful meeting I'm in? Our commutes don't have to be the the life threatening at one end of the spectrum, but just the drag at the other end of the spectrum that like we all have to suffer. It, right. it just we need to be more thoughtful and innovative about how we see our commutes because let's face it, we're not going to be done commuting anytime soon. Right. Whether it's right. getting to work or whatever else we want to do on the weekend. So let's set ourselves up to start taking care of each other better by building infrastructure that's human-centered. Yeah, that's great. What's the next step with the report? Where do you take it? How do you get it into the hands of the um, policymakers? Well, we we sent it to them right away. And so we've already gotten some meetings from some council members uh, uh, right off the bat, which was very encouraging. You know, it's an which exciting moment. So a lot of the usual suspects of folks who've been, uh, you know, supportive of our cause but um, but we're just trying to provide a- ammunition for this more progressive council to continue to double down on improving our streets, safety for right. everyone. Well, data is what sells the day. And I think the more data we have, thanks to this report, the more you know easier it is to get up in front of your neighborhood council and say that you support the bike lane that's going through your neighborhood or you support the bike parking or to get up in front of the city council and actually make those fights winnable. Yeah, absolutely. Like data, data is a, is a key component. Um, education through that data is really what it's all about. And then how Bike LA wants to use this report to say, okay, you read the report and you've seen the areas, there's a map in the report that shows exactly where these fatalities happen. And if you have a fatality in your district, council members, you know, come talk to us. Let's do a bike infrastructure ride. We have a fleet of e-bikes that we're happy to lo- to, to loan. Right. Uh, let's get out and, and and experience your street so you can really have firsthand experience about what people are dealing with. And so that's like the that's the next step is for us to get ideally every council member, all 15, to get on a bike and see where the infrastructure is working to protect their lives and see where it's not. Right. Where can people find the report? The report's on our website, and it's also, it's. I mean, I'm going to send you a link with a bunch of different sources where you can see other, I guess, uh, pieces in the media that, that talk about the report, oh, but great. it's on yeah. our website. Yeah, and, and we I'll will also post that in like, our show notes, just so you know. Awesome. Thank you, man. Yeah, we, we got to do more than just report on this. You know, I, I would encourage the Bike Talk community to read the report and think about their own neighborhoods and how it feels to be on a bicycle where you are. And then, uh, and then reach out to us. Uh, the best place to reach out to us in general is that our, our, our staff email address, info at bike-la.org. 
okay. and shoot us a note and let us know what your lived experience is and, and whether or not your infrastructure, the infrastructure in your area is taking care of you. And again, you know, my, my take is speed is can't be the only measure by which we judge our streets. It just simply is not, uh, it's not enough of an indicator of a healthy, inclusive, sustainable and equitable community. Right. And in often cases, we're not talking about that much difference in time. You know, uh, 10 yeah. miles an hour faster is maybe 10 miles, you know, in the hour. But when you're driving through a neighborhood, 10 miles an hour faster is only a couple of seconds getting to the next stoplight or getting to the next errand that you're running. Yeah, I think we've all had that experience when we're riding, right, where you see a car blow by you and you just meet them at the next light or the next yeah. stop sign. And it's just like yeah. in the and then they, you know, they punch it to the next one. And it's just uh, it's just a kind of a behavior that that the infrastructure has supported. And and really the point of this whole report is we can do better. So yes. so let's let's start looking at uh, these problems, high speeds, excessive travel lanes, lack of bike infrastructure, poor street lighting. None of these things are like rocket science, uh, right. you know, right. solutions. Th these are all things that nothing new really needs to be invented. Right. And it's it's a matter of of having the will and being willing to invest in your own communities that it's gonna that is gonna be required to make these changes. But again, we don't have to reinvent anything. We just need to apply, you know, some of the good thinking that you see in other cities across the nation and around the world. Right. There's a great quote that says that the bicycle doesn't solve any one problem, but it's a part of solutions in almost all of the problems, whether it's obesity, health, clean air, traffic violence. But we just have to create an environment where more bikes can be on the road to help solve all these problems. Absolutely. Let's be car conscious. Let's be car light. Right. And and if you have to take, you know, a team of kids to a soccer game with balls and cones, yeah, okay, fine, get in the car. Again, we're not asking for anything radical here. This is just common sense policy. Right. Until someone gives me uh, <laughs> another reason other than it's, you know, 2% slower than yeah. if we didn't have the infrastructure, I, I just can't really hear that anymore. I, right. I just feel like that's just not as important as the safety and well-being of, of Angelinos. Right. Eli Kaufman, thanks for all the work you do at Bike LA. Thanks for the report. And thank you for coming on Bike Talk. And Taylor, thanks for having me as always. And it's just great to hear these values and these ideas really being spread as Bike Talk does. So it's always a pleasure. Happy to come back anytime. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Yeah.